There is a great Annie Dillard quote about how you spend your days is how you spend your life, you know. And when I first read it, I felt so afraid that I thought, right now, every day, I'm writing in my journal that I've not done any writing. So let's change it. And that, you know, struck the fear of God in me. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ronald Young Jr. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. And we should also say, Ronald, this is your first episode as an official co-host of Working. Welcome aboard the uh, USS Working. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? It's great to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Isaac. Uh, I am Ronald Young Jr., as I said. I'm an audio producer, host, and storyteller based in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I have another podcast called Wait For It, spelled W-E-I-G-H-T, where we kind of examine navigating the world in the plus-size body and uh, what that's like. We tell a lot of stories about that. So that's the type of work I like to do. I also like pop culture. I talk a lot about movies and uh, television. And I'm uh, happy to be here talking to creative folks with you, Isaac. Thanks, man. It's so I'm so excited to have you on board. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So tell me, who was that voice we heard at the top of the episode? We uh, heard the sagacious voice of the charming and talented Amitava Kumar, who is both a writer and a professor of writing at Vassar College. And what made you want to talk to Amitava Kumar right now? So I wanted to talk to Ami for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, he has a lovely new book out called My Beloved Life. And second, he has written in a number of different forms, journalism, memoir, kind of more experimental nonfiction, fiction, all sorts of things. And, and third, he's written and talked extensively about writing and the creative process for it. And so I thought he'd have a lot of uh, wisdom to drop on our listeners. And I got to say, I wasn't disappointed. That sounds like it's going to be an exciting and good conversation, but I'll bet you don't have all the fun right now. Are you going to save some questions for our Slate Plus members? And if so, what can they expect to hear? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, as always, we we reserve some nuggets of gold for the Slate Plus Uh This time, <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things about My Beloved Life is that it's kind of a low concept book. You know, a lot of times when you read about a new novel, it's it's got some high concept premise or whatever. This is just a guy's life story and his daughter's life story and all the kind of politics and ideas of it are filtered through that. And so I wanted to talk to Ami about how he pulled that off and how you keep a reader's attention when there isn't some kind of high stakes hook to pull them along. Oh, that's a very good question. That's I'm, I'm interested to see what his answer is. And if you're a slate plus member, you can see what that answer is if you stick around for the conversation at the very end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get ad-free podcasts and bonus content like the segment Isaac just described. And you'll also get full access to all of the articles on slate.com. Also, if you become a Slate Plus member, you'll be supporting our work and the work of everyone at Slate. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's get to Isaac's conversation with writer Amitava Kumar. Amitava Kumar, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working to Talk About Your Process. Ah, man, thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here with you. 
So we're mostly going to be talking about your wonderful new novel, My Beloved Life, which because this is an audio podcast, listeners cannot see I am holding up right now in the uh, chat window. Um, But I thought beforehand, you know, you have actually written a lot about the writing process. And so I wanted to talk a bit about the things you've written, you know, and how they relate to the writing of this book. Yes, yes. And I thought we would start with your basic writing advice, which you've outlined in a couple of places, the most important one of which is write every day. So why is writing every day so important and why do you, you know, try to force your students to do it? Yeah, my mantra for my students is write every day and walk every day. And the write every day, I want them to be modest. I want them to record, to write 150 words every day. Which is like a paragraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Again, your listeners can't see this, but I've got this little pocket notebook that I carry. It's just a page, you know? You haven't had time, you have various things, you're running late, but you're on a, in a taxi or you're on the train and you just write down something that is happening or you write down. If you have nothing to write, you write something that is outside your window. And I advocate the walking part just because I think a little bit of cultivation of mindfulness. And I say that when you walk, I borrowed this from a Buddhist teacher, when you walk, Imagine that you're planting lotuses with your feet. You know, just that mindfulness makes us slow down both the flow of information into our brains, makes us a little bit more aware of what we are doing, and gives us a sense of interiority in which some ideas can be, will will blossom, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So, why every day? I think uh, just the cultivation of a practice is the most important thing. You know, you don't wait for inspiration. You actually cultivate inspiration. You know, you, you, you sit down and if, especially if you have a particular time where you can do it, you know, then things will flow. And I have arrived at an understanding that if you always inhabit the dream of writing, projects will have a continuity and coherence and everyday life will feed those projects. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. I love this idea that, you know, if you're not feeling inspired or whatever, you can just describe what's out your window or whatever's on your table, you know, whatever's right in front of you. The point is not that it has to be the greatest writing you've ever done once a day or that it even all has to be towards the same thing. It's just simply that you are getting in touch with the part of yourself that is a writer every day for 150 words or so. Precisely, precisely. And, you know, there's a great Annie Dillard quote about how you spend your days is how you spend your life, you know. And when I first read it, oh man, I felt so afraid that I thought, right now, every day, I'm writing in my journal that I've not done any writing. (laughs) So let's change it, you know. Because if I don't do that, then the way this day is passed is how my life will pass. And that, you know, struck the fear of God in me. And I thought, no, man, you know, so just the idea of keeping a journal. And then this other thing, which is that of at the back of my bigger notebook, I just write down the date and then there has to be a check mark next to it saying that I have done what was my duty today. And that's to give you a feeling of accomplishment or? uh... Yes. And that there's nothing as consoling, if that's the word I want, as, as that string of check marks on the page. Where, by the way, just for the sake of honesty, I also note down rejections and sometimes those rare acceptances. And, you know, I say, okay, manuscript sold, you know, something like that. Right, right, right. 
And then another thing you talk about is a bookshelf of your own that for whatever writing project you're working on, you should have a little shelf. It doesn't have 60 books in it, but it might have like 10 books in it or whatever that are somehow related to the project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I feel that any book I've written has some point of inspiration and then it has these companions or I think of, ah, I would like to do that. Or that, mm -hmm. you know, I have no illusions of utter originality or anything. Instead, I think, okay, I'm going to try to do something different, but it is going to be in conversation with this or that. And it need not be a very obvious inspiration, but it is something that I'm in dialogue with. And so I just put those books up there and then I now and then turn a page or refresh my memory about something. It is like, uh, how might I describe it? It is like living under a tent, but the tent is stamped down in six places. And those six places are those books so that your tent doesn't fly away in the storm. <laughs> right. Because the, the crazy thing about writing, you know, particularly when it's fiction is anything can happen on that page. Yes. Right. You know, and that can be scary that anything can happen because you could, you know, in the middle of My Beloved Life, which is a, a quite a realist novel, you know, you could suddenly be like, and then a dragon came in. You could just do that because it's a novel. You could do whatever the hell you want. Exactly. So it's important to know what those tent pegs are. Yes. Yes. So I just love to know about how this book maybe grew out of some of those things in your writing practice. Yes. I was on a Metronoth train, a train that you have been on many times, I'm sure, Isaac. And <laughs> I was reading Dennis Johnson's little novella, Train Dreams. Love that book. Yes. I mean, a short book and yet epic in its form. And the reason it's so epic is one of the reasons is... You know, it starts with a man's life and it takes us across the length of his life. And by the time the book ends, he's old. It's a slim book. It's about a railroad worker somewhere in Idaho when it starts. And I was affected by it and I thought, what if instead of this ordinary life in Idaho, it was an ordinary life in India? You know, and so that was the start, actually. And so that book was on my shelf. I started thinking of my father and I thought of how in telling his story I would span the last century and I thought my father incidentally was born in a village in eastern India but about 45 minutes away from our village is a small town where Gandhi started his Satyagraha movement but also more significant in this context where George Orwell was born. You know, George Orwell's father was an opium sub-agent uh, for the British, you know, because uh, the Brits were interested in India producing opium with which they could penetrate China and dominate it. And they did. So um, I thought of homage to Catalonia. I thought of George Orwell's books. And I thought, what if my character was an unsuccessful writer? He wanted to write a homage to Catalonia. And then, so I put it up there. Now, there are Two or three books, Arundhati Roy's wonderful novel, um, The God of Small Things. And uh, then there is Michael Ondaatje's, maybe in the skin of a I can't remember which particularly, and then uh, uh, Kiran Desai's Inheritance of Loss, all of which repeat a line from John Berger's G, which is, no story can be told as if it were the only one. And so Berger's novel, and maybe an awareness of these novels, was also on my shelf because I thought, 
Unlike Dennis Johnson, who tells one man's story, what if I put another story next to it? Not to challenge it, but to simply tell you that if a story emerged from another viewpoint, the same story would be narrated differently. And I then thought, okay, next to my father, what would, if it was one of my sister's stories? You know, and it's all invented. It's not really my sister's story. But I imagined a woman who is that man's daughter and comes to this country. And so it is from these kinds of collations, things that I've been struck by, that I wanted to then produce a story of my own. And in terms of beginning the actual writing, actual writing is a weird term because it's all writing, right? Research is writing. But I mean, the actual physical act of putting pen to notebook paper or finger to keyboard or whatever, how much of that other work happens before you start telling the story? Or are you someone who discovers it as you tell the story? Yeah, the, the really enriching part is the discoveries that happen on the page. You have no idea. I'm, you know, I'm a great believer in that lovely line of uh, Dr. Rose that says, uh, you know, writing a book is like driving in the dark. In the light, you can only see that far, but it's enough to take you to the place you want to go. You know what I'm saying? You can only see that far. You know, that little horizon of light, 50 feet, I don't know, is what you can see. So you write the next paragraph and then you think, ah, oh, but I was also taking cues, in this case, from uh, Dennis Johnson, for example, since I mentioned him. You will remember that in the novel, that lumberjack, who is his protagonist, he's somewhere on a small, obscure train station. And a train, a private train has stopped, and it is a young hillbilly singer called Elvis Presley, who appears... Right. there's you know, there's a problem with the train and he appears at the door and waves. And I thought, okay, what would a young man in India, let's say in the 1950s, who could be a figure, you know? And so just using that as a clue or as a provocation, I thought, hmm, maybe Tenzing Norgay, you know, the Everest has just been conquered and this man right. comes down. And so I just, so that was the first thing I wrote. Which is a scene for the people who have not read the novel yet that's very early on where Tenzin Norgay comes to visit the protagonist's school to give a talk. Yes. And they uh, meet briefly, they shake hands, they say a couple words, and Tenzin Norgay becomes this kind of aspirational, heroic figure, even though the narrator knows he's destined to live a very normal life. Yes. He's not trying to climb Mount Everest. Yes. But just the idea that you know he has some kinship with a man who did is very important. Yes, to how to be modern, how to be a man of the world, how to be, you know, someone who's not tied to a single nation or a small origin. But actually, you know, when Norge goes up, Norge tells the students there that we planted the flags of Britain, Nepal, India, the United Nations, you know, the sense of the outer world, the huge world out there. You know, I think that's, that's a motivation for many stories, you know. And so for you, is the drafting process, the first draft, is it a lot of fragments that you then are figuring out how to connect? Or is it very like, this happens and this happens and this happens. I've discovered the next thing that happens. You know, how all in one set is it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I try to write it in a more linear way. But I always have my notebooks on the side where I can note down other things that happen. So I'm, maybe I'm in the 1950s. But then I read a little report maybe on the internet, which is from the 90s, 
that an astronaut in space, a Soviet astronaut in space, was still in space when the Soviet Union ended. He was a man without a country up in space. And when he landed, there was some problem. And I just noted down, because it is a much later event, but it seems interesting to me. And then it remains in my mind. And then when I come to that time, it enters my story in some way. That's how I do it. Yeah. We'll be right back with more of Isaac's conversation with Amitava Kumar. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we wrestle with creative challenges and try to provide our best solutions. So what are your creative challenges? Let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to Isaac's conversation with Amitava Kumar. I'm very interested in the voice, or I guess voices, because this is a multiple POV book. Among other things, the father's perspective is delivered in third person, close third person. The daughter's perspective is in first person, you know, et cetera, and so forth. And they feel distinct from your last book, A Time Outside This Time, which is, how would I put it? I feel like that voice is very deliberately playful. Yes. The character has a sense of humor about himself. You know, you could sort of hear him kind of giggling while he's telling you how much he loves Twitter, for example, you know, or or whatever it is. Whereas this is not that. It's its own thing. And I'm curious about how you developed and figured out these voices. Yeah, that's a great observation, by the way. Oh, thank you. What happened was, was especially in an earlier novel of mine called Immigrant Montana, I had, a, again, a first-person voice. It was an exuberant voice. It was a sexual voice. And I thought uh, people often made the mistake of thinking that that it was autobiography through and through. And the, so you just walked around being horny all exactly, the time? Exactly, exactly. And, <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Uh, and so the same happened. I felt with a time outside this time, for example, one of my editors said, I'd love to meet your wife. And, you know, because the wife in the novel is a behavioral psychologist who does all kinds of experiments and has a certain understanding, for example, of why, you know, in dom in pizza houses they, you have red patches or why Celine Dion is played in Walmart. Um, and he said, I'd love to meet. And I thought, ah, he had made the mistake of thinking this was all. I said, actually, my wife is an economist. Um, you know, she, it's a different thing. So here, I just wanted to stay away from that kind of what people these days call autofiction. And somehow it is the mistake that people make is thinking that they pay attention to the auto, but not to the fiction. And uh, I thought I was being cheated out of um, the understanding that I could have been inventing, which I was, on every damn page. So here, there was a deliberate attempt I made of trying, first of all, a subjectivity and a, of having a protagonist, uh, one of, you know, they have two protagonists. So of having a protagonist, one who was so much older than me, and then of having this other protagonist who's of a different gender, is not a professor at a liberal arts college, which 
my last narrator was at an elite liberal arts college, let's say. Uh, so uh, the other choice, though, that's for me interesting, and I realized it at some point, and my editors thankfully liked it, was that, you know, it is a, a more daring choice, is that the father's voice is in the third person, and the daughter's is the first person. And so I felt quite confident doing it, and especially because that protagonist, the woman, is a journalist, something that I always think about. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm also just interested on a like how their sentences sound level, ah, how you kind yes. of thought about the voices. Was that a purely intuitive process for you or is that something because I know you think a lot about style. You've written a whole book on writing style. So I'm, I'm curious about how just even on like a, a sentence level, how you develop those voices. Yes, yes. I arrived at it intuitively, frankly. Yeah. I also thought, if a man has died, how would a loving child speak about him? And so that too came. You know, recently, a few months ago, I did uh, the audible version for the novel. The novel comes out on February 27th, I believe. And yeah. I did the audible maybe two months ago. And the producer of that show said, okay, now you understand that the third person is a little bit more distant the first person, the voice becomes more intimate. And for me, that too, I'm sorry to say that I was stupid enough, that too was a revelation to me. You know, I thought, ah, okay, okay. You know, so uh, I think it was, I just embodied it at some level and so did not think through necessarily. But that's how the differences have come across. Do you read your work out loud while you're writing it? I have been told I should. Uh, I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. that's yeah, great. Because I find that like a lot of the stuff you're talking about, about the intuitive development of the voice for me, and like it comes from reading it out loud in that I can't always say why that sentence doesn't feel like it fits, but I can just tell reading out loud that it doesn't and how to fix it. Even though I don't know, it's not like I have a list of what the rules of the voice of the piece are or anything. It just, just becomes clear to me. That's somehow. amazing. You know, Tommy Orange, uh, who's a wonderful writer, said to me that, the advice he gives to his students and certainly what he follows himself is to have what he has written read out by an app, by robots, basically, by, you know, and for him, it is important that it be read out, not by him, not by the writer himself, but by this other mechanical voice, because that has a certain alienating feeling to him and he gets the rhythm better that way. I have not done it, but it is something that I'm very conscious of. And I think you know, for a while I even, you know, I've had this great aspiration, which has not been fulfilled, that I should appear on This American Life. And on a mug on my desk, I would have a little label that said radio, you know, by which I was trying to tell myself, as you're writing this, try to imagine this prose being read out on radio. Not necessarily by Ira Glass, but even by, you know, or something like that. Hey, podcast listeners, this is This American Life, you know, that kind of thing. I, I also wanted to be that if this paragraph was being read out on the radio, would the listener switch it off? That question had been... So in that way, all I'm trying to say to you is, I'm conscious of that voice, but I have not actively, physically, do have not necessarily read it out, what I'm writing. But it is there in my head. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know, something uh, about the book, you mentioned inhabiting other subjectivities, in this case of having a female narrator. And being willing to say, yes, I can do that and stuff like that. It, it strikes me that there is also 
the invitation for many readers to inhabit narrators who are culturally different from them, right? Because uh, presumably, you know, it's it's being published in America. Most of the people or some some percentage of the people who buy the book are not going to be Indian or not going to be familiar with Indian politics of the second half of the 20th century or village life in Patna or, exactly. or any of the other exactly. things that the story circles around. So exposition is always such a challenge, no matter what the subject is here. And here you have to do it in this diegetic way because it's not like your protagonist is going to sit around thinking like, oh, well, you know, the Indian government system works like this and the parties are called this and here's the, an org chart or you know whatever it is. Uh, I assume that was a challenge of the book of figuring out how to do that. Yeah, that's been a challenge all my life. And, you know, it's something that every writer should think about. You know, Tolstoy or Chekhov writing in Russia were not thinking, how will this play in Peoria, you know? Right. And yet, why is it that when we read them, I mean, I never feel distant from their characters, you know? Their life is my life, you know? Mm -hmm. Their breath in the freezing air is my breath in the freezing air, you know? Right, right. Like, boss, he is not thinking, will someone else in Paris have a sense of this past? Instead, they just right. write, you know? So that's one impulse, I'm saying. One governing impulse right, right, right. in my mind. It's like, let's just, let's just fuck it. Let's just do it. Yes, let's yes. Just, yeah. And then there's this other impulse where I think I admire those people, uh, especially of the tinted persuasion, who when writing for, let's say, the NYRB, will have a paragraph that sort of sets up the context of what they're going to say. And they do it with a deft touch. And I think I lack it. And I think... When am I going to learn to do it? At the same time, you know, let's say there's an episode in my beloved life when the war for Bangladeshi liberation is being fought. Right. And, you know, so I sketch it a little bit. But, you know, there's just an interest I have in what conjunctivitis at that time afflicting Indians was called because the war in Bangladesh was being fought. And I just slip it in and... It's just a little story, and I hope it makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. I always wait for someone like uh, my editor or the copy editor in particular to say, do you want to explain this? And, you know, I say yay or nay, you know. I hate, by the way, can I just add one little note? I hate, yeah. by the way, when writers from elsewhere provide little subordinate clauses, you know, like a samosa, a savory blah, blah, blah. Uh, no, right. I, I, it, that 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 gets my goat. Yeah, no, that's the worst when because it it's not diegetic. It doesn't feel true to the world of the of the characters. Yes, yes, totally. You are in an academic department. You teach creative writing. You have for some time. How does teaching creative writing affect your own writing practice? Because you know, lots of creativity and writing stuff is ephemeral. It's beyond language. But now. You've got to explain it to people. You've got to illustrate it. You've got to articulate it. Does, do you find that it affects your own writing to teach writing? It affects in the sense that I try to draw lessons and then try to offer it to my students. So it affects in the sense that I'm looking for lessons. And then in offering it to my students, I try to enact them myself. So you don't want to be a hypocrite. That's right. That's right. So, for example, <laughs> no hypocrisy here. Yeah. If I find my students a little bit too involved with the self and with the memoir, 
And I feel now they should experience the world. They should find other experiences that they can write about. So I say to them, you know, let's read this book by Barbara Ehrenreich because, you know, Newt Gingrich and the Contract for America, which some people have called Contract on America, um, is reducing people to poverty. So she thinks, let me go out into the world. I'll work as a waitress. I'll work in a hotel cleaning a room. Let me see if I can survive on minimum wage. And that becomes a way for her to discover where her country is at. You, know? you, you do it too. So I think, okay, what can I do now to generate an experience of life which I can then record in a book. So that way is my teaching and writing is intimately linked. The other way in which it is linked is that I really think that I, uh, starting with a mere aspiration to write and not knowing how to write, have over the years been able to write. And so how to make my students understand that they too will enter a process through which they will, even if they do not have a clue about how they are going to do what they're want to do, they will indeed do it. And in that way, over these, let's say, even at Vassar, I've now nearly taught for 20 years, to see the success of some of my students is just amazing. You know, I look at, for example, a name that you and I have discussed before, Lucas Mann, and I think... Who has a new book coming out. He has a new book uh, coming out. This year coming out pretty soon. And yeah. he has, you know, wonderful people at whom I admire, providing him blurbs, and when I read him, I think, what was I thinking when I was thought myself capable of instructing him? Because, but he, but I did instruct him. You know what I'm saying? Because now when I read him, it's like he's so far ahead of what I imagine my own capabilities to be. And I think this is so wonderful, you know, to have the faith in the writing process, not simply as uh, something where you discover work, but actually. You discover your writerly self because you persist and persevere and practice over years. And you become someone who is unrecognizable from the person who you were. That is a great testament to education, by the way. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. That's really beautiful. Um, you write every day or try to write every day. I, I imagine there are some dates that don't get a check mark next to it for whatever reason, Christmas or <laughs> New Year's or something. But, no, uh, no, no. I try to do it. Every, even on New Year's, yeah. I made a little thing and I wrote an uh, Instagram post uh, uh, because I was driving on New Year's Day and I heard mm. on a podcast a line from uh, Lawrence of Arabia and he was close to death and he described it as if like a leaf falling in autumn and I remembered the beech tree outside my house and I came and picked up the leaf made a little artwork and did a little write-up of it and that was my new year's entry that's incredible that's incredible so what does being artistically blocked look like to you if you're also producing work every day or is that not a thing you ever experience I haven't had that. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm afflicted with weak knees. I have something called plantar fasciitis. But the writer's block is not my problem because I'm mm. just recording the world anyway. I, you know, that's something, I, an ethic I really follow. I get on the subway, for example. I want to, I heard Vivian Gornick say that the great gift the city has given her is street life and the drama of the streets, you know, the bitter drama of the streets, she says. So if I just write that down, I'm not blocked at that moment, you know? And I, so I don't, I don't let that enter my consciousness at all. 
Well, Ami, thank you so much. It's always a delight to talk to you. And thank you for coming and talking about your wonderful my beloved life and uh, how your kind of rules for the creative process helped make it. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Isaac. Coming up next, Isaac and I will talk more about practices and tips for aspiring writers. So stick around. Isaac. That was such an enlightening discussion. As someone who has written and wants to do a lot more writing, Amitava started off with some helpful tips that I think basically anyone who aspires to write can do with the writing every day and going for a walk every day. You yourself are an accomplished writer. I believe you're currently working on your third book, if I'm not mistaken. Were these daily practices, he mentioned, something that you already do? And is there anything else that you do regularly that you would suggest to aspiring writers? I do not write every day anymore, although honestly, talking with Ami made me want to get back to it, especially, you know, the goal he sets is so reasonable and workable in sort of any life, you know, 150 words, that's one paragraph, you know, anyone can write one paragraph a day. You can just describe something on your desk for a paragraph, you know? And I do think that when you're early on in trying to be a writer, establishing that daily habit, writing every day, no matter how inspired you feel, I have a novelist friend, Adam, who jokingly calls this his grind set, uh, you know, is is really important. It's actually more important than whatever writing comes out of that, you know, because what you're doing is you're training yourself in your mind to be able to work on command and to not be precious about the context in which that work is taking place. Hey, maybe you're at your desk, maybe you're at a coffee shop, maybe on your subway, whatever, you know, and, and I think that is really, really invaluable. Another thing that I think is really important for aspiring writers is to take writing that you already know you like from other people. I mean, you know, books that you feel inspired by or whatever, and really try to take it apart and see how it does what it does. What is something that it's doing really well? Well, pick a three to five page segment of it and then tear it apart. How did it do the thing that you want to learn? And you'll just from, from digging in on that kind of deep level, you will learn a lot. Even if you don't know all the right jargon <laughs> about writing, you know, you'll learn it. You'll come up with your own and that's fine. I like that idea of using something that exists and kind of turning into something new. Uh, and it's funny because I feel like that's connected to the next thing that I also that stood out to me in this interview, which was that Amitava mentioned that he used elements of real life and wove them into his story. Particularly, he was talking about the Soviet Union cosmonaut who was in space when the Soviet Union fell and ended up being a man without a country and how he faced issues when he was coming back to Earth, yeah. uh, which wild coming back to Earth, <laughs> literally coming back to Earth. Right. Yeah, this is I'm not. <laughs> This not a euphemism. <laughs> uh, Abhi talks about making a note about that and adding it to a story. Have you ever worked a real life detail into a story? And what are some pros and cons about doing that? Well, at this point, I basically write nonfiction exclusively. So everything I write is, you know, real life details. My version of that is the weird digression. You know, I might read a story about a cosmonaut in space and be like, oh, uh, when can I use that? That would be really interesting as like a metaphor for this or whatever. To give one concrete example, I saw a play 20 years ago in which there was this giant projection screen in which uh, at some point you saw a drop of ink disperse in a glass of water in this really beautiful way. And I was like, that is a great fucking image. I am going to find a piece of writing in which I can put like a drop of ink in a glass of water 
in as an image. It just was so vivid. It was stored in my brain. And sure enough, when I was writing the method, there was one point at the end of a chapter where I was talking about the ideas dispersing in America. And I was like, I did it. Drop of ink (laughs) in a glass of water, you know? Um, So to me, it's stuff like that. Now, when you're writing fiction, and I know enough novelists at this point that I think I can speak somewhat authoritatively on this, there's no way to avoid using real life details. No one makes up everything whole cloth. And and I think most writers historically who said they did that were kind of full of beans, you know, um, because part of why people write fiction is they're curious about the outside world. Stuff of that's going to stick with you, you know. I think the major pitfall has to do with crediting and particularly like if you are taking a character or an idea or research from a source and that source doesn't end up in your acknowledgements. I just think that's kind of a shitty thing to do Uh, to give a totally made up example. I am currently reading Vivian Gornick's The Romance of American Communism right now, which is about American communists. It's portraits of American communists and the stories in it are incredible. You know, a Jewish girl from the Lower East Side going to California to organize the agriculture, the migrant agricultural workers in the thirties and falling in love or whatever it is. You know, if I were writing a novel about American communists, I am sure one of these stories would end up in that book, you know, but you got to put something in the acknowledgements. It's like, by the way, this character was based on blah, 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 and the romance of American communists or else you're just kind of, you know, I don't want to make a federal ethical case about it. I just think it's part of being a good human being. Do you know what I mean? I get it. And I it's funny that this kind of turns into an ethical question, which tells me kind of like the boundaries when it comes to that type of creative work, especially in writing, because you write something down and your assumption is as long as you're reading it, you know, it's from me. But yeah. if it's read in someone else's work, there has to be some sort of connection to the actual root of the work. So I appreciate you saying yeah, that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Every field has different norms about this. I mean, one of the big ones that I'm sure you've come across a lot in your interviews and everything like that is jokes stealing in the comedy world right oh my god you know, yes you know like like who who <laughs> can what hot button issue right yeah. you know people some people steal jokes intentionally some people just have incredible memories and they steal jokes um you know robin williams who improvised most of his work was fairly famous within the comedy community for reusing other people's material but he was sort of improvising and just like who knows where that information comes from so every yeah. field has to deal with this and figure out what the norms are the norms of borrowing and jazz for example I mean, that's just quoting someone's piece of music in your solo. That's totally different. So, you know, each field, I think, has to sort of hash out these norms around what kind of borrowing is acceptable and what that acceptable form looks like. I absolutely loved your question about voices when it comes to writing. It's something that anyone who reads will likely understand and hear in our minds, but we don't necessarily do a lot of work discussing how those voices are developed. Ami talks about separating his protagonist from himself deliberately in order to keep the voices from being deemed autobiographical. And he talks about it intuitively from like a role-playing imaginative place. Is this something you think about often in your own writing? And how do you develop voice when you're writing? Is it different for nonfiction writing? Uh, It is different for nonfiction writing, although, you know, the few times I've written fiction or like, you know, uh, short dramatic works or whatever, I I often try to actually like physically do a voice and then see how that changes what the person sounds like. Like, I think there are those kind of acting tricks you can do um, when developing someone's voice. There are lots and lots and lots of different strategies that people use for doing that. And we should say that Ami's previous book, The Time Outside This Time, the character was was not autobiographical, but was very similar to him. It was a writer and professor of creative writing at an arts colony at a residency, you know, so that confusion's understandable. 
in the method, look, it contains sections. The method's completely written in third person. I'm not like pretending to be anyone in the method or like speaking in their voice, but it does contain sections where you get someone's point of view on what they're doing rendered in third person. And when that happened, I did try to modulate the voice a little bit so that it felt like you were getting a flavor of that person and their unique human spirit coming through. Now, I only did that if I had a letter or diary or memoir or interview in which they said, and when this happened, I thought this, right? Because it's nonfiction. I didn't want to make anything up. And then, but developing the voice was somewhat intuitive. A lot of the time I would just read a lot by that person and then try to write that section. It was hardest, you know, it's hard when you go outside your own identity group, even in ways that we wouldn't normally think of. Like it was easiest for me to write from the, you know, to sort of modulate into the voice of Stella Adler or Lee Strasberg, American New York Jews, you know, like I know what an American New York Jew is. Um, but Konstantin Stanislavski, who lived in the 19th century, was a Russian Orthodox Christian in czarist Russia. I mean, that's a little bit harder, you know, even though I think we we would sort of think of all of those people as white, you know, those are different identity groups. And it was it was definitely a challenge. Isaac, before I let you go, I'm wondering if there are any writing styles that you admire that you've ever wanted to try out. If you could switch up everything and write something totally different, what would it be? Oh, man, I would write science fiction. I love reading science fiction. It's like been my comfort reading since I was a little kid. I, I I'm actually have a science fiction fantasy book club. We're reading this great book right now called Leech by Hiron Ennis, which is a gothic science fiction horror novel narrated by a mind control parasite. You know, and I read that book. And I'm like, Oof. I could never fucking do this in a million years. It's it sounds so like far, animorphs. It's, <laughs> it's so far beyond my skill set. You know, like there are some forms of fiction I could imagine writing, but that is not one of them. But but what about you? What What would you write if? Uh, talent were no no barrier. Here's the thing: since I haven't written any book in any genre that I actually wrote in, would be would be me breaking the mold. But I often get very jealous of people who write these fantastical worlds in science fiction, and I would love to write like some sort of space opera that involved God, like different yeah, right? races and people crossing over and planets it- and. Alien strikes me as a like sentient alien strikes me as amongst the hardest. It's like, how do you even figure that out? And it's always a metaphor. So how do you make the metaphor that works for you? Yeah. Man, this was a lot of fun. Uh, And that's unfortunately all the time we have for today's show. But before we go, just one more reminder. If you join Slate Plus, you'll get to hear all of our episodes ad free. And you'll get to hear exclusive segments on our show and a lot of other Slate podcasts. And you'll get full access to the articles on Slate.com. You can sign up today at Slate.com slash Working Plus. We'd like to say special thanks to our guest, Amitava Kumar, and uh, extra special thanks to our beloved producer, Cameron Drews. Join us next time for Ronald's conversation with the one, the only, Carla Hall. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>